Well, 20 years ago, the most notorious American trader in American history was arrested. On February 18th, 2001, Robert Hansen was heading home after dropping off a friend at the airport. But on his way home to Vienna, Virginia, he decided to make a quick stop. He drove to Foxstone Park, and there he got out of his car. It was a cold evening, and he stuck a piece of white medical tape under a bridge. And this was a sign as he walked to this bridge and he placed a sealed black garbage bag underneath the bridge. Looking around to make sure that he wasn't spotted, he kind of quickly darted back into his car. But that night, he wasn't as safe as he thought because they were watching. And the FBI swarmed in and they arrested and captured this American spy. After 20 years of selling American secrets to Russia, he finally had been caught by the FBI. He was swarmed and he was armed and the FBI took him down. And as they placed handcuffs on him, Robert Hansen said this. He just had one question. What took you so long? Oh, it was a question filled with arrogance. It was a traitor who had profited from lies and deception for years. Hanson had collected an estimated $1.4 million for giving lists of American agents, revealing the names of double agents in Russia, and providing documents that were showing U.S. intercepting Soviet transmissions, and even giving Russia the methods by which the U.S. would retaliate in the event of a nuclear attack. Oh man, the Department of Justice called the work of Robert Hansen possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. Hansen is currently serving 15 consecutive life sentences without parole at a federal supermax prison. So how does someone who was born in Chicago, Illinois, the Midwest of America, earned an MBA, and worked as an accountant, become this treacherous? How does one person do so much damage and ruin so many lives? Well, Hanson's story is kind of an interesting one, although kind of boring. He became an accountant, and then after working in a firm for a while, he joined the Chicago Police Department as an internal affairs investigator specializing in forensic accounting. And then in January of 1976, he joined the FBI. Now, he had only been at the FBI for three years when he actually had been caught spying for the Soviet Union, but not by the FBI, but by his wife. One day she went down in the basement and caught him there with some files that he was hurriedly covering up. And when she questioned him about it, he lied to her and gave her the response that he was just doing trick, tricky things to trick Russia into thinking that he was working for them, but he was really loyal to America. However, that was a lie. He was really tricking the Americans. Doesn't this just read like a good spy movie? I mean, it is the stuff of spy novels and TV. In fact, the story was made into a movie in 2007 called Breach. But this story wasn't made up. It was real. 
there were so many lives that were lost because of this man, Robert Hansen. It's a confusing story because he was also a family man. He was married. He had six kids. They used to take vacations in Florida to see their grandmother. And he was a devout Catholic. But in the end, he lived a double life. And his life was a very different picture picture from what he let people see on the outside. The inside of his life was cloaked in darkness and deviant behavior and secrecy. Oh, it was all for a payoff too. It was all about the money. Money is what motivated him. Well, today is Good Friday. And today we remember another man who committed an act of treachery, Judas. A man who unexpectedly, after three years of working alongside Jesus and the disciples, decided to betray Jesus. It too is a confusing story. It's one that is hard to understand. How could someone, after three years of walking with Jesus and eating with Jesus and learning from Jesus and seeing him do all these miracles, how could he betray Jesus? Oh, betrayal. It is so painful because it is the act of breaking trust. Oh. You see, betrayal says or does something that breaks a promise. And when a a promise is broken, it is so wounding because someone has chosen selfishness over and above the relationship. See, betrayal is one of the most painful experiences that people can, can feel because someone broke trust with them. Betrayal is very relational. The closer you are to someone, the more devastating it is when you are betrayed by someone. If you're betrayed by a stranger or just an acquaintance, someone you don't know as well, it hurts, but not nearly as much as when you are betrayed by someone you love and care about. You see, when we trust someone, we give them a piece of our heart. We are hardwired to be relational beings. We want connection. We want relationships. We want belonging. We want to trust others. And betrayal is so traumatizing to us because it calls into question our decision-making ability. We didn't see that betrayal coming. And so we start to question our own judgment and our intuition. It's all messed up. How can we make another decision? Can we trust ourselves When trust is broken, it really shatters your world. You question yourself. You question those around you. You question your motives. You question your world. Well, tonight we're going to look at this most famous betrayer, perhaps the most famous betrayer in all of history, Judas Iscariot. See, Judas, he too was an accountant. He had a sharp mind. He was trusted by the group to take care of the finances and provide for Jesus and the disciples as they went around in their ministry. Now, we don't know much about Judas, but we do know he was chosen by Jesus and commissioned with the rest of them. Now, Mark 3, 13 through 19 begins to tell us the story of Judas. Judas went up on a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James, sons of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them, he gave the, the name Boenders, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Mark is writing this years after it happened. So as he describes Judas Iscariot, he can describe him to us with that knowledge and saying, he's the one who betrayed us. But if we look at another passage, I want you to see how when um, Luke writes this in Luke 6, 16, he describes and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Luke writes with a little different perspective, knowing this was something that he was to become. You see, when Judas started out on the team, none of the disciples knew that this was going to happen. He was on their team. He was one of them. He would preach. He would teach. He would heal. He would cast out demons. I mean, he represented Jesus for three years as part of this team. But somewhere along the line, he turned. Now, John 12 tells us that when Jesus was in Bethany and his dear friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he was having a dinner with them and Mary decided to anoint Jesus by pouring expensive perfume, a nard on Jesus. And it was a very generous and extravagant thing for Mary to do just to show how much she loved and respected and trusted Jesus. And I mean, he was so honored by this family because he had brought Lazarus, her brother, back to life. These guys were really good friends and they were so thankful and it was a happy moment that was being celebrated, but not everyone thought so. John tells us in John 12, four through six, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected to what Mary was doing. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared. He didn't really care about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, he would open the cookie jar and take out the cookies whenever he wanted them. All was not peachy keen amongst the 12. They had discovered that Judas was a thief. Now, did you ever steal anything when you were a kid? My grandpa used to collect pennies. He had this huge penny collection and he even had some machine or something that made him super shiny. So I remember one time when I went over to my grandparents' house. I was just a little kid and I went into my grandpa's office and this card table he had out was piled with all these pennies and I thought he had enough and they looked pretty good. So I pocketed a few of those pennies. Now, when you steal something, there's the thrill of getting the thing, but there's also the thrill of getting away with it until you get caught. In my case, it was by my mom, who seems to have eyes in the back of her head. I mean, how can moms know these things? Well, John goes on to tell us in the next chapter that something big happened as Jesus was taking the disciples into the upper room for the Last Supper. John 13, 2 says this, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So we know that the devil is involved with this whole thing. He partnered up with Judas. 
Now, if you've ever tried to use the excuse, the devil made me do it, well, now you know where that came from. I mean, you give Satan an inch and he will be a ruler, right? Well, nobody got that message to Judas because he was in. The devil was very much in the life of Judas. Now, Satan, above all, is a liar and a deceiver. And Jesus describes the very nature of Satan in John 8, when Jesus was talking to some of the Jews who were already plotting for a way to kill Jesus. Jesus describes Satan in this way in John 8, 44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. You see, the father of lies, Satan, is the one who was working with Judas. Scripture is very clear that Judas and Satan had partnered up together. Now, Luke is going to describe to us another passage in, uh, in chapter 22, 1 through 6, that, that kind of fleshes this out a little bit more. So I want to read this passage too. Luke 22. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and they agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Okay, so Judas was entered into by Satan. I mean, doesn't this sound kind of creepy? I mean, it sounds like a horror movie. Satan entering into Judas. Satan possessed Judas. Now, I hate horror movies. I am not a scary movie person. Man, one time when I was in high school, I got dragged to the movie theater, unbeknownst to me, to like one of the scariest films that had released that summer. I pretty much sat under my seat for the whole movie with my eyes covered and my ears covered and pretty much sure that I was never going to hang out with these friends again that dragged me to this movie. But the whole idea of Satan entering into, Je- or entering into Judas does raise some questions, doesn't it? I mean, let's look at some of the hard questions maybe this raises for you. Did Satan take over and possess a good Judas? Or was Judas already walking in line with Satan the whole time? And this was the moment it was all leading up to. Which was it? How about question two? Why would Satan do this since the death and resurrection of Jesus would result in Satan's final defeat? And question three, where was God when all this was happening? Why didn't God just stop it all in the first place? Well, let's take a look at some of these things. Now, we know that Judas was not always prone to choose the good God-honoring choice. He often had his hand in that cookie jar. He was stealing from Jesus and the disciples. Now, before this moment even occurred where Satan entered into Judas, Judas had been setting himself up for this. Judas loved money and he was willing in his spirit 
to betray someone for money. He had repeatedly made decision after decision after decision to love money more than his relationship with Jesus and the disciples. Loving money, it can be a powerful motivator, can't it? Not just for Judas, but for all of us. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, money isn't evil. Money can do lots of great things to help people. But the love of money is definitely a means that Satan can use to influence people to wander from their faith. And he did this with Judas. Now, the other thing we need to remember that Satan doesn't take innocent people captive. I mean, mainly it's because there are no innocent people. We are all sinners. We all make mistakes. We are all prone to leave into our desires of our flesh. You see, and this is just the opportunity that Satan is watching for and wants to exploit. And this is why we are called to be ever vigilant. Be vigilant in your faith. You see, Satan is given power when we sin. When we lean into our sinful desires, well, when we lean into those rather than to Jesus, Satan is given a stronghold in our life, especially when we repeat sin over and over again. I mean, look at Hanson, our FBI trader that I started our story out with. He repeatedly sold secrets for year after year after year. Judas repeatedly stole money from the treasury. I mean, that kind of repetitive sin is something that opens the front door to Satan and says, come on in, stay for a while, sit down and have some lemonade. When you let Satan come in, he's willing to stay for a while. So number two, why would Satan push Judas to betray Jesus when it would drive Jesus to the cross? I mean, Satan, didn't he want to deep six Jesus and get him out of there? Sin is so much more fun when Jesus isn't around. Have you found that to be true? Well, when Carl and I were out for a walk many years ago, way before we had kids, we were down in Orange County and we were hanging out with our friend, Matt. He was our best man in our wedding and he's a theology professor at Biola. So when we get together, we always love to talk Bible and theology and faith and how, what's going on in the world and how Jesus intersects with that. And we were having this great conversation about Jesus and faith at dinner and we finished dinner and we got up and we started walking around um, in some of the, the neighborhoods down there and I don't even remember what we were talking about. We were so absorbed in our conversation. But all of a sudden, this guy who had been walking in front of us totally stopped, turned around and like yelled at us. He's like, what are you doing? You don't talk about Jesus on Friday night. Don't talk about Jesus on Friday night. And he turned around and walked away. Obviously, he had some plans that did involve Jesus on that Friday night. He didn't want Jesus around. Well, when sin is around, we don't want to talk about Jesus because sin belongs firmly in the grounds of Satan. Well, when Jesus did enter the picture, Satan tempted him three times trying to get Jesus to use his power to avoid any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship, to make Jesus uh, look, look really good in the eyes of the world. You see, it's our enemy's memorizing taunt that still rings loudly in our world today. Use power. Use your power to escape suffering. See, Satan tried to convince Jesus of that. He, and he tries to convince us 
of that today. He even offers to help you do it. Whatever you do, don't suffer. Don't suffer. Don't sacrifice. Do not pick up your cross and carry it. You do not need to do that. These are the taunts of Satan. Oh, see, Jesus, he knew what he was doing. I mean, sometimes people think, why would God let his son suffer like this? But Jesus was a willing participant in what was happening. You see, when Jesus started to explain to the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die for us, Peter was adamantly against it. Peter said, never, Lord. And Jesus rebuked him harshly. And he compared that mindset that Peter had to that of Satan. This is what he said in Matthew 16. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So as he talks about this with the disciples, um, it, it is, it's clear that um, Jesus knew what he was doing. He was partnering with God, but Satan still wanted him gone. Maybe after hanging out on the earth with, with Jesus for three years, Satan was like, whatever it takes, let's just get this guy out of here. But he wanted to make it as painful and heart-wrenching as possible. And so he brought betrayal into the picture. You see, being betrayed by his disciples, those closest to him, it would wound Jesus the most. Mm. Why didn't God stop it? Well, God didn't betray Jesus. Jesus always knew what his mission was. In Mark 10, 32 through 34, we have this very clear picture. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. Jesus knew what was gonna happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus was working with God. God wasn't against Jesus. He loved him. God did not betray Jesus. And God will never betray you. You see, if Jesus had not gone to the cross, then all the promises of God, all the prophecies and the hopes that one day God would send someone to save us, to help us, to heal us, to forgive us, and to lead us would have been in vain. The ancient prophet Isaiah said, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And all this, it began with the kiss of Judas, the Judas kiss. Rather than the holy kiss that was so common in, in that culture and society, Maybe not so much today with the coronavirus, but that kiss of betrayal. It took something that was honored and respected, the a, a holy kiss, and it made it a betrayal, the Judas kiss. Mark 14 tells us the story. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them 
The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. As he was kissed, then that was the sign to the guard. The men seized Jesus and they arrested him. You see, that kiss of betrayal was the emblazoned arrow to ignite the horrific events that were going to unfold. Jesus was arrested and accused and put on trial. He was tortured and mocked and beaten. And then he was crucified. You see, this story of betrayal, it is so emotional for us. It is so hard for us because we are surrounded by this idea of betrayal. And we know that betrayal is so wounding and traumatic. Maybe you remember a time in your life when you were betrayed. I remember a time when I was in high school and my lifetime best friend went behind my back to start a relationship with my boyfriend who I'd been dating for two and a half years. Oh, it was deeply wounding. He betrayed me. She betrayed me. It took me a long time to dig out of those wounds. For those of you who have been betrayed by a spouse, I've heard so many of your heart-wrenching stories and they're so painful. Someone who promised to love you and take care of you. Those wounds of betrayal are crippling. For those of you who have maybe been betrayed by a parent or a trusted adult, I've heard many of your stories that are also just filled with so much disappointment and questions. Why someone who you were supposed to trust, someone who was supposed to protect you, let you down. They betrayed you. And those wounds are filled with pain and with bitterness. And rightly so. Betrayal is awful. It is absolutely awful. Those wounds of betrayal make it all the more profound and precious when we are met with true loyalty. When we are met with someone who is loyal to us and trustworthy and faithful. Oh, someone who acts and speaks with care and protection. Someone who is trustworthy. The night of Good Friday is punctuated by so much pain and betrayal. Perhaps to highlight what was to come on the other side. You see, Jesus endured the betrayal of Judas, the denials of Peter, the cries of the crowd, crucify him, the spineless indecisiveness of Herod and Pilate, and the pain and the torture of the soldiers. He endured the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and his feet and being hung from a cross. He endured death itself and betrayal so that betrayal would not win. You see, the pain of betrayal was nailed to the cross that day. Jesus died so that the weapons of Satan would be crushed. Jesus stayed the course to the cross to provide another way out. You see, love is what won out that day. Grace and hope, God's plan filled with purpose. In spite of all the brokenness and pain and hurt and betrayal in which we find our world embroiled, maybe our own hearts come this night wrenched and conflicted. We have an option because of the cross. We have a choice because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We can lean into the passions of this world that whisper and woo and sometimes shout and persuade. 
We can let them fill us and guide us and lead us down a path of destruction or we can lean into Jesus. You see, Jesus remained loyal to God to teach us how to remain loyal to him. Oh, the sweet aroma of trust and loyalty, the rock beneath our feet. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Jesus can help us to become loyal people. He can teach us what loyalty looks like. Loyal to him and loyal to the people in our lives that we love and that we treasure. See, temptations, oh, they are all around us. But for every temptation, Jesus always, he always provides a way out. See, the cross provided a way out of this evil plot that was filled with hate and deception and betrayal. The cross stands firmly planted in the pages of scripture and in our lives as a symbol, a permanent precious reminder that Jesus is loyal. He is loyal to the mission of love. He is loyal to the reality of redeeming brokenness. He is loyal to his promise of a thousand better tomorrows. He is loyal to lead your life with purpose. He is faithful and he is trustworthy. Oh, we will have traitors and liars and deceivers and betrayers around us. We will have them always on this side of heaven and they will wound us. But by his stripes, by the cross of Jesus, we are healed.